0: Hi, I'm Jessica from Tudor Time Machine. Before we start the next episode, I wanted to let you know that we're offering our very first line of Tudor Time Machine merch. So these six items are only available until November 30th. Then their history. See what I did there? Go to our Facebook page and hit the shop now button to see our Tudorific designs. The best pod swag out there. This inaugural offering is 10% off. So don't miss these items that declare your interest and your style. And enjoy this episode of the Tudor Time Machine podcast. Hey-ho, Tudor-minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tudor Time Machine, and this is episode
1: 31 of our podcast. Thank you for joining us. And if you're new here, it's best to start at episode one. This is a story project, and it goes in order. We're
0: super excited to be reaching thousands of Tudor-minded people from all over the world. It's really an amazing community.
1: I know, listeners who love a story and who also love history. You are our kind of people.
0: Yes, and
1: check out our
0: new Tudor Time Machine merch. Press the Shop Now button on our Tudor Time Machine
1: Facebook page buy some swag, and support our podcast. It's a twofer. Yes, and in our last episode, Philomena and Constance visited Sir George Wyatt and discovered that there's an inventory of Wyatt's possession that might hold a clue to the relic. Now we're returning to 1526, and the Court of Henry VIII, where Sir Thomas Wyatt and Anne Boleyn are throwing some serious shade on each other. After the reading, we'll have some fun discussing the history beyond our tale and making connections between then and now. Read on, Jesse. Chapter 31,
0: 1526, The Palace of Greenwich, in which Anne and Wyatt compose a song. Thomas Wyatt found John Heywood a wily knave of a man. Sitting here in the music room of Henry's castle, Heywood was relaxed at court in a way few men were, a long-legged cuss with a wit that might, on a fine day, rival his own. Heywood's lute resting across his legs, his gravelly voice strangely easing to the listener, he sang, "'Where to should I express my inward heaviness?' "'Henry wastes you at court as a singer when he writes such songs,' Wyatt said. "'Tush, Thomas. Save your critique for a less dangerous versifier. Beside, you wrong me. It is not poor lyrics that cause me grief, but a poor pocket. I do not think the king will pay for a phrase, or I may be wrong. Does he pay you for your poetry?' "'Indeed not. I am no court jester. You think only to be paid, Heywood. If I could borrow for my lord Cromwell, as you do, pay would not trouble me. For a shilling I will sing a rhyme that does not meet. No mirth can make me fain, till that we meet again. Do way, dear heart, not so. Let no thought you dismay, though you now part me fro. We shall meet when we may, so fro, dismay, so fro, so fro. Haywood's spirited emphasis made Wyatt put his hands over his ears. "'Rest, man, by the fat, hairy ass of pan, you will crack the windows with such a tune. More's the pity that the god's poor poet and earless composer should be our king. I will chant his majesty's words over your head, Thomas, as you seem bent to lose it. "'So fro, dismay, so fro, so fro!' Wyatt's voice rose over Haywood's. La, 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 my body gone. Now John Haywood sings this song. How I wish my head and body to meet. Only then could I see my feet. What larks you are. Your voices are truly elegant. But may I have a moment on the Virginals? I am in need of practice. Anne's voice. It was all Wyatt could do not to throw the lute in his hands across the room. Instead, he threw a look. She was surrounded by the retinue the king bestowed. The Marys, Boleyn and Zouche, Jane Parker, a few of the Howards. He could never keep them straight. "'Sir Thomas Wyatt?' Anne turned to him. "'It is best you leave. Your face will cause me only to hit bad notes.' Anne, as she was, took a practised walk across the room and set her fingers on the keys. He hated her. He hated, hated her. An affair with the king made her so unkind. "'Your false playing, mistress, is no fault of my face.' wide attended his lute what shall i play sir thomas she asked oh yes of course you wrote a new poem in my honour one that has been passed all around the court have you not heard it madge mary i know you proud to hear your sister regaled in such verse how charming it would be set to music hm master Hayward, what tune would suit Hitting a lively melody on the keys, Anne sang, Ye old mule that think yourself so fair, Leave off with craft your beauty to repair. "'for it is true without any fable. "'No man setteth more by riding in your saddle. "'Oh, Sir Thomas Wyatt, "'I enjoy that riding in the saddle image, "'and yet I was disappointed. "'You, the great poet, the Orpheus of Albion, "'from that teeming head of yours, "'could you not pluck some more cruel words to strike me with? "'You hold others to such high standards.' "'He hated her. "'Do you think it might be better in French?' He longed to kick her, altering his words into foreign dung. No. Do you long for me to translate? Everything is more forceful in French. Tell me, is not Poutin more to the point than Mule? She was a siren, a siren on this earth, but she would not lure him to his death. You make mischief, mistress, and I will not be made a fool for your hangers-on oh take them away master Heywood. teach them a new dance in the great hall while i make a fool of sir thomas in private thomas glared at Heywood, leading the ladies out he himself would like to imagine that anne did not have such authority but as the king's favourite no one questioned her i do not like that melody i will try another perhaps one more morose anne said striking a note "'that you may sing your insulting verse with your mates, "'and the word will spread all the more quickly "'that I am old and overridden and not to be desired, "'and that will bring you joy, and I long for your joy. "'So, Wyatt, come stand next to me "'as we sing of my haggard state.' "'He could not resist. "'I am not as cruel as you are.' "'No, I believe you to be more cruel, "'and you will not sing with me.' "'Her hands poised above the keyboard, "'but he spoke before she struck. "'He is nothing.' You are wrong. He is by birth and action King of England. That cannot be a nothing, as you are but a poor poet unless you cover the rank of your birth, that, on his account, you rate so low, so you must not count it for yourself. Does this not leave you to be less than nothing? How will you think this out, Sir Wyatt? It is a puzzle. Why? Why? Why must she hide in such words when they felt a twine of truth between them? Anne, do you not miss me? To what purpose should I answer such a question? Anne, you are indeed a stubborn mule. Can you say in truth that I have been out of your thoughts? She resumed her tune, leaning into the instrument. Anne, a tune cannot drive me away. Anne, swear on the life of the French lady, your Marguerite herself. Swear that you do not miss me. Her playing stopped. I cannot. He felt a slight happiness. So you have missed me. "'Thomas, more than once. I know the loss of a true friend, and I grieve. But it is a death, Thomas, a death!' He knelt beside her. "'Then let us have a mass to the dead, for my soul is in purgatory!' He bent his head, a supplicant to love, hoping for her blessing. But she ignored him, singing notes to herself as she played. "'Anne!' She played on. He was unmanly there on his knees. The itch of combat roused him. Why have I wasted my love on you when there were so many sweet kitten ladies and you are a cold bird of prey with your talons ripping out my heart, flying over the earth? You are the most forgettable whore I ever bedded. You have bedded so many men that you cannot tell a heart from a cock. Anne was on her feet. I never bedded those men. "'Thomas, you soulful gentleman, "'you could not tell the lie of the woman you felt such love for. "'You, oh, so sensitive, such feeling, flowing!' "'Anne pounded her chest. "'Woe to me, unfaithful bitch! "'You took many men to your breast. "'What do you say? "'You had them again and again. "'You, who loved me so. "'You believe me so unchaste. "'What clear eyes love brings. "'When you came to me, you were no virgin. "'Yes, I had so many before you.' He felt the fear in the stomach. He stood but did not chase. He had to know. Anne, you said it was moontime, and that was why you bled. You told me. Anne was leaning against the wall for support, holding her own body in a tight hug for comfort. He was ashamed. Anne. Anne, I I have wronged you. Have mercy. You loved me so much, you gave me the sweetest thing. To me, bound as I am, to a wife I loathe. But you loved me so— I whip myself with hot irons, chains, briars, and thorns. Anne, Anne, we must be. We must be. Can you not see it? You are a sweet virgin, and I I felt it. We must be. And he kissed her, her whole face. I love you, Anne. I am desire with you, Thomas. And there is no one else. There is no one else. No one. Her mouth was at his ear, her hands pulling his hair, and he felt her biting kisses. God, she was a scorching flame, her body heat a sun, her legs white hot. He pulled her skirts up, her breathing, please, yes, and I love you, in his ear again. And if this was hell, it was his hell, better than heaven. He sank with her onto the floor, holding her by his side. Thomas, she said, this moment is what I wish were true. My soul felt every one of the hundred stinging wasps you sent with your verse, and I have been wild with the pain. But you are not the one that drives my anguish. It is the king. He shows me the man he is, and it is not half the man you are, Thomas. He wears the crown, but he is your vassal. Yes, Thomas, I mean this. Even the shell that houses your soul is finer. You share the colour of your eyes and hair, but his is drowned in brackish water, and yours catches the glints of the brightest day. The pursuits of the mind, I cannot begin. His company dull, his poetry, music, he is a mimic, a beast of repetition. You are touched by Apollo even in stature you stand a bit taller your shoulders just that much more broad oh god it is an agony to be slobbered over by your lesser shadow if i can hold him off no longer and i must lie with him i lay my life his cod will be a worm she burst into tears "'My Anne, my own darling, I will help you. Henry is changeable, inconstant. He will turn his eye from you. I, I will encourage it. I will point out a new lady at court. I will petition him to give me a divorce for my putrid wife.' She wiped her cheeks, and he saw she felt the moment had passed. Her expression seemed to say that she regretted her frankness. He helped her stand. He saw something in her, almost a desperation.' Anne, he will not cleave to you. I have a girl in mind to turn his fickle heart. He will forget, as he forgot my sister. He saw that reaching out to her might make her rebuff him. Her solitary air he knew well. He waited that she might have room to finish her thought. You must say nothing to the king, Thomas. After the event at the Bulls, it will rile him. You will follow this, please. He hated that he must appease Henry, and yet he knew her judgment was sound. I must do something. A delicious little cat smile flickered on her face, and he almost gasped when she said, "'Can we not meet?' "'I would meet you five minutes hence. I would meet you in a privy drain.' "'I prefer it not to be a privy drain, sir, but I will meet you.' "'Oh, God! He wanted it to be right now, but since it could not be, he asked, "'Shall it be later, this very day?' He amused her, and that was marvellous, because they were going to meet again that very same day. He tried to remain calm. After evening prayers, I will come again to practice my virginals, she said. On this very same day, in but a few hours. Each hour will seem a year. No, it will not. Tis true. Yet it is hard to wait. He kissed her.
1: Wyatt and Anne just can't stay away from each other, however dangerous it is. No, they can't. And the stakes are much higher
0: in this chapter than in previous chapters, even though we're still in way back there in 1526. But since the last time we saw Anne and Wyatt, Henry's interest in Anne has grown. He's just shown up at a joust with a heart in a press and the words declare I dare not emblazoned on his armor. For Catherine of Aragon, Anne is so far below her, but Anne is gaining influence at court because of Henry's obvious favor in a way that other Henry's other love interests
1: didn't. I know and we see the entourage who follows Anne around and how John Haywood a politic man who survived through the reign of Henry VIII Edward Mary and Elizabeth does not argue with her when she tells him to leave her alone with Wyatt and that's because she's powerful.
0: Right. Hayward understands getting on the wrong side of Anne would be a big mistake. She's the king's favorite for the moment, and it, you know it's wise to listen to her.
1: Yes, but at this point, the idea that Henry would want to marry Anne, that would not be in anyone's mind. She might have power, she might be the favorite, they, she might have a big entourage, but she's not going to be queen. And Henry does not ask for an annulment from Catherine of Aragon until 1527. And even then, I think it's probable that Henry really wanted Anne for a mistress and not a wife.
0: I agree with that. And in 1526, Henry had certainly not mentioned any idea of an annulment to Catherine. He didn't even mention it to her until after he had started investigating it with the popes. And Thomas Wyatt and John Haywood have seen the king's interest in other women come and go. Elizabeth Blount and Mary Boleyn are Henry's most well-known mistresses, but undoubtedly he
1: had others that we don't know about. Maybe he wooed them with his very questionable poetry. Oh dear. In this chapter, Wyatt and Haywood diss Henry's poems. Mm. And the verse really was written by Henry, supposedly for Anne herself. Oh, thank you. And I can't resist. I have to read this masterpiece. Mm. Where to should I express my inward heaviness? <laughs> no mirth can make me feign till that we meet again. <laughs> Do weigh, dear heart, not so. Let no thought you dismay Though ye now part me fro, we shall meet when we may. When I remember me of your most gentle mind, it may in no wise agree that I should be unkind. (laughs) The daisy delectable, (laughs) the violet waning and blow, you are not variable, I love you and no mo. <laughs> that is really a low point. <laughs> oh my God.
0: Henry has a reputation of being a great Renaissance man, a gifted musician and songwriter. But
1: this poem, I mean, I know, it just goes to show you how it's really hard to judge the real talents of a monarch by the way they were lauded by their contemporaries. Everyone had to say the king was great at everything, and it was dangerous not to. It's
0: tempting to take contemporary accounts of people or events as true. These characterizations of personalities, they're skewed by opinions,
1: prejudices, nationalism, and yes, fear. Because one of Henry's courtiers flattered him by writing about his good looks, prowess, and creative genius. It does not prove that Henry was any of those things. The whole court had to pretend the lines, I love you no mo, were genius. That
0: makes me laugh.
1: But how about the 16th century hit, Pastime with Good Company? Henry also wrote that. Hey, that's mediocre. It's no hey nani nani. Now there's a song. Yes, there's a song. Sigh no more, ladies, sigh no more. Men were deceivers ever. One foot in sea and one on shore. To one thing constant never Then sigh not so But let them go And be you blithe and bonnie Converting all your sounds of woe Into hey nanny nani. Now Josh Whedon did a beautiful rendition of that For Much Ado About Nothing And we're just going to play ten seconds of it here Because it still holds up It's still a great song It still is a great song then sigh not so But let them go and bunny, all your of world hey, Nani, Nani It's really beautiful.
0: Hey Nani Nani is definitely a Men Are Shit song. Men Are Shit songs have always been hits and I like the line, dumps so dull and heavy. Do you think that's where the expression down in the dumps
1: comes from? Maybe. It's funny. I always thought dumps was kind of a modern word but no it's a 16th century word but women are shit songs too have also been popular what about green sleeves true and
0: green sleeves is also a look at all the stuff i bought my girlfriend and she still left me songs like that line thy petticoat of slender white with gold embroidered gorgeously thy petticoat of silk and white and these
1: i bought gladly he was so <laughs> generous, and yet she left him. The Tudor version of the talking heads, take my money and my cigarettes.
0: Exactly. And contrary to popular belief, Greensleeves was not written by Henry VIII. It's in the style of an Italian song that didn't come to England until Elizabeth's reign. So the idea that uh, that Anne was Greensleeves and wore Greensleeves all the time apparently is just fake. So from past time with good company and... So fro, me no, mo. <laughs> I I mean, I think we can say, conviction, that Henry VIII was a so-so lyricist, but the other two literary fellows in this chapter, Thomas Wyatt and John Hayward, were genuine talents. Hayward was a really interesting person at court. He was a musician, a poet, a playwright, and he probably acted in his own plays, and he was like an epigram whiz.
1: What you have, hold. Haste maketh waste. Out of sight, out of mind. Two heads are better than one. Love me, love my dog. I mean, the list goes on and on. Every famous epigram in English is John Haywood's.
0: I used to assume all witty epigrams were either coined by Shakespeare or Benjamin Franklin. (laughs) Who
1: knew? Haywood was a prolific guy, and it was his job. Courtiers like Wyatt and the Earl of Surrey were what we might call gentlemen poets who would scorn being paid for their work, but John Haywood was a professional entertainer.
0: After some time at Oxford, he came to court in, in about 1519 as a singer, but by the 1520s he was receiving a salary for singing and teaching the Virginals and Henry gave him property in Essex and income from the lands, which must have been pretty exceptional for somebody who was a singer. There's, there's been a lot written about Henry's fool, Will Summers, who was able to say things to the king that other people couldn't because he was funny. I think
1: Haywood must have had a similar relationship with Henry. Then is now, comedians get away with a lot. But also, it's hard to walk the line between being funny and going too far and pissing off the king. Absolutely, but Heywood must
0: have known the limit because he survived at court for decades. He was extremely well-educated in the humanist tradition and that influenced his work. And in fact, one of his earliest plays, Johan Johan, was an English adaptation
1: of a French farce. Uh, It's fascinating because it revolves around a priest who's having sex with Johann's wife. Again, even though Heywood was a devout Catholic who later left England because of the persecution of Catholics by Elizabeth I, he was willing to mock priests and play up their immorality.
0: I think there were a lot of people in the 1520s when this play was performed who thought of themselves as good Catholics but loved satire and thought it was fine to ridicule religious figures.
1: Sure, they saw the truth in it. They admitted that there was a tremendous amount of corruption in the church. Erasmus, Sir Thomas More, and Boleyn herself, they were all calling for reform.
0: I think Martin Luther met with so much support with his 95 theses because there was so much growing outrage against church corruption. It's just that some people wanted reform and some people wanted to eradicate the Catholic
1: Church altogether. Mm -hmm. That's sort of how it goes it's always the question reform or smash it all and start over again luther wanted to smash it all up sir thomas moore wanted reform and given that he remained a catholic john haywood was in line with more more or less no joke the two men were very close
0: yeah actually haywood married sir thomas
1: More's niece jane rastell which is an interesting marriage, not only because it cemented his relationship with Sir Thomas More, but because it also influenced Haywood's theatrical career.
0: Jane Rastell's father was a barrister for his, you know, quote, day job, but he was also a printer and England's first publisher of plays, as well as being a composer himself. And he built this elaborate house in Finsbury Fields, which was in North London, you know, outside the city walls. And he had a stage built on his property.
1: It's just so sad that there's no surviving details about the theater. Mm -hmm. I would love to know the shape of the building, the seating capacity, the stage dimensions. Did it have wings? (laughs) All that. But... Rastell's theater may well have been the first space in London dedicated to putting on plays.
0: Right, and again, like it's hard to know who actually acted in the plays, but by all accounts, it was a family thing. And Mrs. Rastell, nie Elizabeth Moore, sister of Thomas, made the costumes. I kind of like that image of her sewing away and making these fabulous costumes. And John Haywood developed a lot of his plays that were later performed at court by first staging them in Finsbury Fields. And the whole family, including Sir Thomas More, are said to have acted
1: in these plays. If I did have a Tudor time machine, (laughs) I would like to travel back to 1525 and go to one of those shows. Mm -hmm. I would love to see the style of acting, the kind of stage they used, the scenery, everything. And I would definitely love to see Thomas More, Saint Thomas More no less running around in a costume, Mm. saying his lies. Perhaps even playing the lecherous priest in Haywood's John John. (laughs) Uh, Who knows? I mean, Moore did have a good sense of humor. Yeah,
0: and he had a definite sense of satire.
1: Yes. So it's fascinating that John Rastell had this theater at his home, and it reminds me of how much theater there was going on before Shakespeare.
0: Yeah, I mean, Shakespeare didn't come out of nowhere and invent the English theater.
1: John Rastell
0: was printing plays in 1520. That's 45 years before Shakespeare was even born. And he built this home stage in Finsbury Fields 51 years before the theater was built by James Burbage. So there were plays and theater and acting everywhere in England.
1: The historian Greg Walker calls John Haywood the most neglected, brilliant playwright, although I'm sure other historians would vie for someone else.
0: I agree. But (laughs) I think the thing about Haywood is he was so much earlier
1: than everybody else. He was so early.
0: You know, I mean, you can argue like Marlowe, Middleton, Shakespeare, you know, Decker. But, you know, John Haywood was writing these plays and these satires... 60 years before even longer before Shakespeare. So that's I true. Mean, he must have been an excellent musician too, although even though there are plays of his that survives, there's no music of his that survives. But he taught Henry to play the virginals and he also taught Princess Mary to play the virginals.
1: That's true and in this chapter we see Anne herself hitting the ivories.
0: Not the ivories of a piano, of course. The first piano was not made until 1700.
1: Okay, this is my trivia for the day. <laughs> Did you know that until the 19th century, the keys that are now white on the piano, the seven natural keys of each octave were actually black, and the five half tone of each octave, which are now black, were white? When Mozart played
0: the color of the keys on his piano, was the opposite? Yes. <laughs> That's not what they showed in Amadeus.
1: <laughs> Historical <laughs> accuracy police
0: Well, I, don't, I did not know that But I will remember it when I get on Jeopardy It'll be a question
1: Do remember <laughs> that But no, Anne did not play the piano She played the virginals Virginals were a super popular keyboard instrument And let's go straight to the source for a description Okay, this is from a musical treatise from 1460 The virginal is an instrument in the shape of a clavichord, having metal strings which give the timbre of a clavicambalo. It has 32 courses of strings set in motion by striking the fingers on projecting keys, giving a dulcet tone in both whole and half steps. It is called a virginal because, like a virgin, it sounds with a gentle and undisturbed voice.
0: So if you played the instrument with a harsh and disturbed voice, (laughs) did that mean you were, like, not a virgin or just a punk rock
1: virginals player? I think we have to ask Madonna. (laughs) Maybe men made young women play on their wedding night to see if they were virgins and it was some weird purity test. Well I wouldn't
0: put anything past the 16th century
1: patriarchy. This connection with purity and virginity
0: obviously made the virginals a very popular instrument for gentlewomen in this period because they were supposed to have these qualities. Queen Elizabeth played the instrument very well and I'm sure it fit into her virgin queen image although of course you know, she was also incredibly strong and very willing to be very loud. So
1: Yes, temperamental and not speak in dulcet tones. No, (laughs) when it served her. Yeah, of course. And in this chapter, we see Anne Boleyn playing the Virginals, but putting a poem of Wyatt's to music that is the opposite of a virgin. Poem implies that it's about somebody who's almost
0: not a prostitute, but definitely somebody who has had a lot of sex, the opposite of a virgin. And we thought that was just the sort of, you know, witty thing Anne would do. She understands the absurdity of this disconnect between this gentle, plunky sound and these sexually insulting words Wyatt has written, that she's old and gray and overridden.
1: We've been talking about John Haywood's love of satire. And this is Anne being satirical. And our Anne sees through Henry. She despises Henry because she knows
0: he's a poser as a Renaissance man. Kind of like what's evidenced by this horrible poem he wrote with the so fro, so fro, you know. And Wyatt is his better in talent, in looks, and in humor, everything. But the fact that Henry happens to be king makes it impossible dangerous to reject him from where Anne is standing as a lady-in-waiting.
1: It must have been a quandary for the women who were favored by kings. Not just Henry, but any king. Because or you're, any powerful man. Any powerful man. You, you had to go along with it because it was just too dangerous not to. But Henry's heart is not Anne's. She cannot resist Riot, and she's going to try to keep it all going. <laughs> well, we'll see how that works mm-hmm. out. But the next time, we're going to see how Constance and Philomena plan to outsmart George Wyatt and get a hold of the inventory. (laughs) Leave us a comment on our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page. We love hearing from you. And buy some swag. Everyone looks great in the Tudor Time Machine t-shirts. Oh, they're great. Like a queen. (laughs) You're a queen in the Tudor Time Machine t-shirt. All our gratitude for listening and listen next time for more Times Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk.